So this uh, next series of classes is the continuation of our three courses on the three characteristics of existence. And in a way, it's it's the model that, or the framework that's used for understanding this very natural process of waking up. We're literally waking up to these underlying qualities or characteristics of our experience. We're waking up to what we normally don't notice because our thoughts about things keep us from noticing the underlying nature or characteristic of our experience. So I'll talk for about 25 minutes or so, and then we'll break into small groups. We're going to have small groups tonight. Usually we do it on week two, but... Uh, Dharma Corps, who we share Monday night, share the building with on Monday night, they're going to meet next Monday night, so we won't have the community room to use for the small group, so we'll, we'll do it tonight. In that, uh, in the guided sit we did, this is from a article um, that Joseph Goldstein wrote a couple of years ago, and it's at, our, at the Buddhist Studies website. You can Read that, because you can continue this in part of your meditation. You can go through these three reflections, as we did tonight, or you can read the article, do it in the way that Joseph recommends. And uh, it's Joseph Goldstein's turbocharged meditation on anatta, the not-self, or the impersonal nature. He, at the beginning of this article, he says he had some friends, he has some young friends who have families, kids, and they don't have much time to practice. And he was thinking, well, what could I offer them that would be of use? So he came up with a nine-minute meditation, three minutes on hearing like we did, three minutes on the body, three minutes with thoughts, as a way to aim the mind, direct the mind in the direction of this insight into the impersonal nature. So in the summer we looked at the quality of impermanence and in the fall we looked at the quality of dukkha, stress, and this winter now we'll look at the impersonal nature. These are three facets of the same thing. And the same thing, what we're talking about, is this. So this is the real... This is like all the skillful means that the Buddha came up with and the other teachers since the time of the Buddha have come up with. They're all directed to help the mind break through its inertia, its tendency to interpret this in a way with thought, like this moment, any moment is this moment, right? But the mind very quickly interprets it and that interpretation the mind gets identified with, and then that identification or attachment with my interpretation of this, in a sense, serves as a barrier to insight, to seeing things more deeply or more clearly or as they are. So think about these teachings, all the teachings, as skillful means. It's a medicine designed to have a result. And the result is what we call insight. Seeing what the mind isn't yet seeing, or understanding the seeing clearly is what then transforms one understanding. 
So the Buddha was interested in suffering and the end of suffering. And he diagnosed that the problem of suffering is arising in human beings due to misperceiving or misunderstanding the way it is. So the cure then is to cultivate qualities of mind that, and, you know, qualities of mind and also pointing out instructions. So the combination of having a really balanced, steady mind, you know, with all the right qualities of interest and joy and a little bit of stillness and a little bit of equanimity and a little investigation. And you put it all together and then you get some instruction like, Notice the changing nature. That's what we did this summer or in the fall. Notice the limitations or the unsatisfying nature of whatever is being experienced in the moment. This. Or this winter we'll be noticing that this is impersonal as we look at it. When, when we're not thinking about this, but actually directly knowing this, it's impersonal. It only is personal, only has the appearance of being personal because of the thoughts we give to it, the way the mind interprets this. It's important because a lot of times, especially with anatta, the not-self or the impersonal nature teaching, people want to pick it up as some ultimate truth. Ajahn Tanisaro has an interesting article about this. I think it's included in the list of resources. You know, he normally, he, he says, the Buddha really meant for us to take karma as the central framework, cause and effect, and to use anatta, this teaching, as a skillful means of realizing how to be free in a world of karma, cause and effect, the conditional lawful unfolding how to participate in a world defined by karma without being burdened by that cause and effect. That's really what the teachings of anatta is, to sort of bring in some perspective of how to be free in the world in which we find ourselves. But people do it the other way. They, they take anatta, the not-self, as some absolute ultimate truth, and then they try to understand, well, how does karma fit into that? Like, why does it matter what I do if it's all empty? And it it leads to a lot of confusion and philosophical spinning. So, you know, generally the Buddha was very pragmatic. You know, we very clearly experience the world of karma. This is the beginning of wisdom from from the Buddhist point of view. Someone who has no wisdom is somebody who doesn't think it make, it doesn't matter what I think, what I say, and what I do. Either because I feel completely helpless, everything's happening to me, I have no control, no say, no, so, sort of the helplessness to the extreme, or it's all random, or whatever view we might have, but, you know, all the different ways where we don't really want to own that how we are, how we're relating, what I'm thinking, what I'm saying, and what I'm doing affects how things unfold, affects the experience that arises for me. So then, you see, that makes us interested in being mindful. 
That's like the beginning of the path. We have to have some sense that uh, what we're doing, how we are, how we're relating, what we're thinking, that it matters so that we start to pay attention to our actions in the world. On a larger scale, which we call sila, like issues of justice and privilege and um, kindness and meanness and competitiveness and taking things and sharing. So all on that level, but not just on that gross or obvious level, but all the way to the most subtle movements of mind. Those matter. So the first level of wisdom is this level of of, of appreciating that actions matter. And then what that reveals is, you know, because just accepting and working with the law of karma, then if we become a good student of karma, we'll eventually come to the conclusion the Buddha came to, that the ultimate defilement, the ultimate cause for suffering, is the mind projecting some kind of personality view on experience. It's more toxic than greediness, more toxic than fear and aversion and and hostility, because those negative or unwholesome qualities are born out of a sense of separation, out of a sense of self. So it's, it's this acceptance and working with the law of karma, cause and effect, and then the distilling of that basic framework. So we're living our life with the framework of karma. What we do, what we think matters, and we're looking at it on a gross level and also very subtle levels. And through that process of, you know, out of compassion for ourselves and others, we pay attention then, once we have a sense that karma, cause and effect, is relevant. And we begin to distill, like, what, what causes problems and what doesn't cause problems. And in that distillation process, it all comes down to the sense of separation, the sense of self, is the ultimate root of suffering. But it's important to realize that we can't replace the sense of self with a sense of not-self. That's not what the Buddha is teaching. Because that would be a self-move too. So the understanding or the, the path is really a transformation of understanding. So once we get that sense, that, that deepening intuitive sense, that the personality view is a defilement, is a cause for suffering for myself and others, then what has to, what has to happen is the personality view has to be seen as empty of self. Right? It's not about, I have a personality view that I have to get rid of, but we have to study the personality view. Basically, we have to study nature. We have to study this, the present moment, the expression of this life in the present moment. And what we'll find is that correlation. You know, karma is really a matter of correlating 
cause and effect. And we'll see selfishness, self-centeredness, sense of separation always leads to contracted states of being. Contracted states of being leads to unskillful actions in the world. When we're afraid, we want to go invade someplace or build high walls or take things because we may need it later or not share because we might need it later for all kinds of things. So what we have to do instead is we have to look at what's there to see what it is. Because it was the looking at what's there that taught us that self-centeredness is a problem. So we just keep doing the same thing. So now we look at the self-centeredness, we see it's a problem, and we keep studying it as a problem, and we realize it's not personal. That the selfishness and all the things that are born out of selfishness, it's not personal. And this is what transforms the understanding in the mind. Hating ourselves for being self-centered doesn't transform self-centeredness. Doesn't transform greediness. Doesn't transform any of the negative, unwholesome qualities of mind. So whenever you, you get confused in the course of, over the next weeks, it might be useful to come back to your direct understanding and confidence in karma, in that intentions, like what the mind is doing, there are consequences to that. And so I'm just a student of this life, paying attention, correlating how the mind is, what the mind is doing, how it's seeing or viewing or understanding things, and then what kind of life comes out of that, how it is for me when my mind's this way, how it is for me when my mind's this other way. And then let this, the teachings and the different themes that we'll take up in the next weeks, then use it in that context. Like, uh, I'll just read a little bit from that article by Ajahn Tanisaro, this great uh, Western Buddhist monk who's just done some great, prolific translations of the Buddhist teachings, which have been so useful for so many of us. Ordinarily, not-self is taken as the frame, and karma as the puzzle piece that doesn't quite fit into the frame. If there's no self, then who does the karma? How are the results of karma transmitted through time? But if you take issues of skillful and unskillful karma as the frame, the question becomes, when is it skillful action to use a perception of self? When is it more skillful to use a perception of not-self. When do you drop perceptions entirely? These are questions you can explore and practice. Instead of entangling you, they set you free. So we're really looking, uh, in a very pragmatic way, the view. We're not looking for some ultimately true view. We're using view pragmatically. What view leads to skill in the world, leads to harmony, leads to peace, leads to the ease of the heart and mind.
And you can just see, like, does selfishness do that? <laughs> does it lead to ease and peace and harmony? Or does it lead to something else? I think we probably all know the answer. I want to say a few more things about where we do this work. I I mentioned earlier, you know, we do the work right here. And it's important that we have some faith. This is really what we sing about when we do the Three Refuges together. You should have a sense as you're chanting the Three Refuges that what you're taking refuge in is here and now. Otherwise, you're really missing the point. And, and it should feel, over time especially, it should feel, there should be a sense of real gratitude that there is this laboratory of the present moment. Like the Buddha said, you know, the whole world, the arising or the truth of suffering, its cause, its cessation, the whole path is here. There is no other place for it but here. The problem is here. The resolution is here. And this is a important paradigm shift because the way the conceptualizing mind works is we have a almost a magical way of creating realities like the path is you know we imagine Mark walking the path that the Buddha taught and we it's like a story we tell ourselves and there is you know now I'm the ignorant person and then I'll train and but it's all somehow out there. So the most important thing in practice is is grounding it here and now. In this fathom-long body, as the Buddha said, it's all here, it's nowhere else. Or that other place, that famous passage where the uh, Ananda was lamenting the loss of the two chief disciples of the Buddha, male disciples of the Buddha, and uh, the Buddha says, Ananda, have I not already told you that there is separation and parting and division from all that is dear and beloved? How could it be that what is born, come to being, formed and subject to fall should not fall? That is not possible. It is as if a main branch of the great tree standing firm and solid has fallen. So too, Sariputta has attained Nibbana in the great community that stands firm and solid. How could it be that what is born, come to being, formed and bound to fall should not fall? That is not possible. Therefore, Ananda, each of you should make oneself one's island, oneself and no other one's refuge. Each of you should make the Dhamma one's island, the Dhamma and no other one's refuge. Now, it may sound like the Buddha saying, you know, don't trust anyone, you're on your own, you know, dog-eat-dog world, you know, we have to fight for the scraps or whatever. But I think instead what the Buddha is saying is that all of the teachings, all of the work we do is here and now. I remember one teacher, I forget who it was, said something like, this practice is very personal, but we can do this very personal practice together. 
And there's some deep truth to that, that, uh, you know, our particular ways of being deluded and disconnected and unaware, unwise, caught in views that don't align with the way things are, the unraveling of that entanglement, of that knot, has to happen here. And really, there's not much other people can do except model the untangling of their own knot. And that's really what spiritual community is about. It's like we're agreeing to come together and to, as best we can, support the untangling of our heart, this natural process that is hindered through self-view. Sakaya Ditti, this personality view, this wrong view. So we work together, you know, we work on ourselves together. We work on the, uh, the problem that is right here and now. And we know the problem as dukkha. It's the, it's the direct experience of stress or the heart of the mind being bound in some way, entangled in some way, heavy in some way, obstructed in some way, that we directly experience. Where do we experience that? Well, we experience it here and now. So it isn't, it shouldn't be theoretical, the entanglement. Like I'm theoretically an ignorant, unenlightened human being. But that experience of being an unenlightened human being, it's right here. If it's anywhere, it's right here. So then, like I mentioned, the three characteristics of impermanence and dukkha and anatta, the not-self quality, they're just ways to begin to break down, break through the habit of seeing this in the ways we've always seen this, interpreting this in the ways we always interpret it. Because it's not easy. It's like, uh, you know, because we identify you know, those big, long, truck-like vehicles that are painted yellow or orange and have all the windows. You know, it's like really hard not to see bus when I show you a picture or you see one. It just, it would, imagine how hard it would be to change that perception. And it's the same way, you know, when I, like maybe you notice when you feel the body, it's so hard for the mind not to, to, to sort of, interrupt the direct perceiving of sensation and insert, oh, that's just your body. Here, notice that concept. Don't feel those sensations. You don't need the sensations. You've got a concept that represents those sensations. And here's all my opinions about <laughs> that concept. So this is the problem. It's the human mind. You know, we have this habit of, of inserting a concept. This is from uh, Bhante Gunaratana, the Sri Lankan teacher, wonderful teacher who's been in the West now for a long time. He wrote a, a very good book, Mindfulness in Plain English. I'm sure a number of you have read it. came out a while back. And on uh, page 40, it's a couple of great quotes. Our human perceptual habits are remarkably stupid in some ways. We tune out 99% of all the sensory stimuli we actually receive and we solidify the remainder into discrete mental objects. 
Then we react to those mental objects in programmed habitual ways. A little bit later on the next page, he says, Vipassana meditation teaches us how to scrutinize our own perceptual process with great precision. We learn to watch the arising of thought and perception with a feeling of serene detachment. We learn to view our own reactions to stimuli with calm and clarity. We begin to see ourselves reacting without getting caught up in the reactions themselves. The obsessive nature of thought slowly dies. We can still get married. We can still step out of the path of a truck, but we don't need to go through hell over either one. This escape from the obsessive nature of thought produces a whole shift, a whole new view of reality. It is a complete paradigm shift, a total change in the perceptual mechanism. It brings with it the bliss of emancipation from obsessions. Because of these advantages, Buddhism views this way of looking at things as the correct view of life. And Buddhist texts call it seeing things as they really are. And often it sounds a little heavy. Um, some of you who've been coming to the weekly practice groups might have heard this. I, we've been reading uh, Joseph Goldstein's new book, um, Mindfulness, A Practical Guide to Awakening. And he talks about you know this phrase the Buddha uses quite often. So when we're paying attention in this direct way, that the natural result is a disenchantment and a disen- being disillusioned and dispassionate way of relating to our experience. And that sounds, it can sound a little grim, you know, the, the being disenchanted and disillusioned and dispassionate. It sounds a little flat or uh, like, we're screwed, so why bother? But it's better to think about it in the way that we just heard. It is a liberation from enchantment, a liberation from illusion, a liberation from being pushed around by sense experience, constantly pushed around, constantly needing the next hit, needing to get rid of the thing that's been irritating us. Never settled in the sensory world. So the awakening is really this awakening into this place of nature being nature. I mean, this is what we see when we go, and it it always confuses us when we go out into nature. This is why seekers... Buddhist seekers and any other authentic spiritual seekers have always liked being out of civilization. Because you go into nature, and it's really the same thing as civilization. The bigger are exploiting the weaker, and, uh, you know, life is eating life, and things are growing, and things are dying. But it's not a problem. Isn't that interesting? It's not a problem when the hawk swoops down and takes the rabbit, or the rabbit this time escapes, or the thorn plucks the skin, or the, you know, deer tick bites into the flesh and transmits the virus. 
when we're really looking with the eyes of nature, nature is not a problem. When we personalize the deer ticks and the thorns and the hawks and the rabbits, personify the cute rabbit, demonize the vicious hawk, those birds of prey, they look mean. It's true, you know? There's a very interesting movie some of you probably have seen by Werner Herzog. Grizzly Man. Man. Thanks, Doug. And, uh, I mean, it's, it's a disturbing film, actually, in a lot of ways. But he, one of the things the film is good at is looking at how, what we project onto nature. And in this case, in particular, grizzly bears. There's about a person who had a lot, I think, fair to say, a lot of idealistic notions of grizzly bears um, and got eaten by one in the end of the film. <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing. No, I'm laughing because I'm laughing. <laughs> but it's like, what do we project? And that this is happening all the time. Now, the nice thing about going in nature is it has a way of stripping away our projections because they just seem so unnecessary when we're out in nature, especially after a while, it actually, I've, some of you I know have done this too, I've spent a lot of time backpacking and, and even a lot of that by myself. And uh, what becomes apparent after a while is that whatever your mind is projecting, like, oh, this is so beautiful, or it's like, it's just a heavy weight. You don't, after a while, you just, your mind just stops telling itself stuff about, what it's experiencing. And it becomes very much more ordinary being out there. And uh, this is the thing that it, that expanse of nature, wildness, it really starts to show up the unnecessary activity of the thinking mind. It doesn't mean we don't think, you know, like where would be a good campsite, you know, how do I get out of the wind, how should I dress today. You know, thinking still happens, but thinking then is put in its proper place. Thinking is, the point of thinking is not to figure out the truth. Truth is not conceptual. Truth is this. It's right here. It's always been here. This is the truth. But the trouble is the conceptualizing mind projects something, its interpretation. So we keep missing it. And we're dissatisfied. So we keep trying to fix our conceptual truth, but it's never going to be satisfying. Even Buddhism as a concept isn't satisfying. You could be the world's great scholar on emptiness, the Buddhist teachings on anatta, but it wouldn't be satisfying, it wouldn't be liberating at all. I mean, it might be more useful than cultivating other worldviews or other philosophical points of view but it wouldn't be liberating. So this is where we'll be going. We're looking, we're doing this practice in order to be happy. Next week I'll talk about anatta in terms of happiness a little bit. Um, Because it's really important that we have a sense of the liberating quality of this looking into these teachings of anatta. Same with dukkha, same with impermanence. It's not grim duty. It's something we should be so grateful for because we 
intuit from our own direct practice, we intuit the liberating quality of this investigation. Liberating the heart to be free, to be alive, to really love and be compassionate, to be unafraid of loving and being (coughs) compassionate and responding for the benefit of all. I mean, a lot of us want to be kind and loving people, but we don't seem to do very well at that. But it's because of the mind has doesn't have the understanding that supports true compassion and love. We can't fake it, you know. It's not enough to want to be kind. We need the understanding that allows kindness to arise, non-fear. You can't be kind and afraid. And the truth is, most of the time, whether we, we know it or not, we're afraid, if not all the time. So, in the small groups tonight, I, many things you could talk about, anything that I brought up that uh, seemed relevant or interesting to you could bring up, and you can begin the reflection now, think about what you might want to say as I give you some other ideas, and then we'll break into groups of three, as we do every other week in the Buddhist studies class. So, just to summarize some of the things that might be relevant to share in your two or three minutes, you might just review your life, examples from the recent past or long ago, where you were clearly aware of the weight of self-centeredness, some strongly contracted self-view, sense of separation, and the weight of it, the pain of it, and also the entangling nature that whatever you tried to do about it tended to reinforce. It's like when we feel really bad and taking it personally, it's like needing to make it go away makes it bigger, you know, because if it wasn't much of anything, I wouldn't need to do anything about it because I so desperate to fix it or to deny it or to hide from it or don't let other people see it, it makes it more real, more personal. So to share your own direct experiences of the dukkha of self-centeredness. And just to get a, just to be honest about how this is a weight, a hold that we fall into. And then another place you might go with your sharing is, like, where do you see, how might you see the personality view as functional? Because remember, Ajahn Tanisaro said, it's like, when is it skillful and when is not self-skillful? That view is skillful. Because there may be places, you know, where self-view or uh, holding, playing that role is appropriate not a cause for suffering. What are the supporting ideas or conditions for the sense of things being personal? What are the supporting um, conditions for the mind not being so caught in self-view? What allows the mind to see things as a movement internally, externally, as a movement of nature instead of something personal. 
And then uh, the last thing you might want to bring up is just some of your experiences in the sit tonight. Like when you were going from the knowing of hearing and then just checking out, known by who, known by what, who's knowing, where's the knower. And just that distinction between experience being known and a sense of ownership or agency. And to go back and forth between those two and just share a little bit about your experience, what appeared, what if anything got clear in that. So those are some things you could uh, bring up. And it's a real, we try to make it a real practice, not in a tight way, but a real practice when we get in the group, sit close together so you don't have to be too loud. That way you won't disturb other people. And uh, even if you think you know everybody or you think everyone should know your name, everyone say their name. And on the days we have small groups, please wear the name tags. Um, that way, even if you say your name, if you're like me, you forget after a few seconds, and it's nice that person has their name tag on, because you might actually get to know some people, at least their names. And uh, so you introduce yourself, make sure somebody there to time. Anybody who can hear this bell, you can all do the timing for you, but if you're out of earshot of this bell, then you need somebody in the group to do the timing between two and three minutes per person. Then you switch. Each person gets their two to three minutes uninterrupted. You're just in that, when you're not speaking, you're just in that loving, receptive place. And what really helps is just ground in the experience of the body. Be present to your body, and that will help you show up for the other person. Don't feel like you have to make eye contact or nod. It's fine if you do, but you don't have to, and don't feel like you've got to support the person. Just trust that they can just use that open space. And when you're sharing, if you run out of things to say, you still get your full time. Just hang out in that open space and continue to reflect on these things. And you might have more to say before your time is up. And if you do, then say it. If you don't, no problem. Because it's okay. We, The three of you can just hold that silent space together in a very relaxed way. It's totally okay to let silent space go. Don't feel like you got to fill it up. And then after each person has had a time to share, there's about five minutes for the group to talk less formally about anything. That's when you can say, I really like what you said about this, reminded me of, or ask clarifying questions about what somebody said, or talk about whatever you want to talk about um, around this topic. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.